Jesus. Mighty God. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. I want to start this morning moving on from the sentiment of that song, making a statement that I want you to ponder over the next few weeks as we head up towards Pentecost Sunday. And it's this, God is supernaturally patient. Let me say that again, God is supernaturally patient. I need you to say that with a little bit of clip in your voice. Not, oh God, supernaturally patient. Or you make it a statement, a declaration. God is supernaturally patient. It'll make sense why I'm saying that in a moment. Let me pray before you sit down. Father, we thank you for your word. That is a light to our path. Lord, there are many people saying they've got lights. There are many leaders in positions of power around the world who think they're leading us into the light, but oftentimes they're leading us into darkness. We thank you, Lord, that your word is eternal. It is light. It outshines every other light that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so, Lord, we pray today that we would see that light. Lord, that you'd illuminate our paths. And Lord, that we would be confident of every delay in our life being according to your will and purpose. And it has a purpose behind it. In Jesus' name, amen. Tap your neighbour, have a seat. Guys, you can go and grab a seat too. Beautiful. Well, here we are. After a uh, long period of time, up till Easter in the Gospel of John, we've now launched into a new line of thinking over the next seven weeks. Last week was the beginning of that. In the lead up, the 50 days to Pentecost from Easter Sunday through to Pentecost Sunday. And uh, as we were preparing for this year's preaching, um, it appeared to me that one of the hallmarks of this period of time between the Sunday that we celebrate Jesus being raised from the dead and the spirit falling on the disciples at the time, 50 days, is like, what are we waiting for? Why couldn't the Holy Spirit just fall on the next day or even that day? And I want to say to you that with God, what I felt to say that we are sent, we're sent to go and be um, God's hands and feet in 2023. But we're also called to understand the purpose of waiting. Why do I have to wait? What is that about? And um, we, we live in a, a very um, instantaneous gratification world. We just want to stick the bowl of rice in the microwave oven, boom, it's cooked. We want to, uh, we want to be able to, I don't know how we're going to do that, but we're transitioning to electric cars allegedly and uh, the, old, the day of pulling up to the servo and taking four minutes to fill up the car with, with petrol or diesel is going to be replaced by having a cup of coffee at OTR, sitting around for 30 minutes, if you can get in the queue and waiting to charge your car up. It's like, I don't know if that's going to go well for a bit, but anyway, the, the scientists and the engineers that be assure us they're going to sort those problems out. Um, and so we might actually all be heading into a season of learning anew as 21st century uh, Western people how to wait. That's not a bad thing. Because I reckon God's into it. In fact, I'm sure God's into it because the Bible's full of stories where delays 
are a part of his purpose in the lives of the stories that we're, right, that we're reading about. And so um, I felt that it was good to shoot back into the book of Exodus as we start to contemplate waiting. And uh, I'm not, I listened to, Tim didn't actually talk about this last week, did he? He talked about scent, but he didn't talk about Exodus, right? So last week down at Parkside, I preached the message out of Exodus, um, starting in Exodus chapter 3. And um, I want to make these just a couple of recaps so this message has got some context for you. Our journey into God's purpose will always take twists and turns that we don't understand. Like Moses is born into a weird situation where the edict had been given out that boys born to Hebrews were to be executed or killed at birth. It's like, that's pretty toxic. Um, he gets rescued by a pharaoh's daughter, brought up as a prince, in, basically, and educated in all of the ways of the Egyptians. He gets involved in understanding he's actually Hebrew. And uh, it's just an amazing convoluted story. He ends up, long story short, he ends up killing a guy. Can't get much of a better, a worse day in your life than actually being taken to a place where there's, you're complicit, absolutely up to your eyeballs. And so he flees from the country and heads off into the Una whoop whoop um, to get away from everybody and everything, fearing for his life. And he meets up with a guy, a priest from Midian called Jethro, becomes his father-in-law eventually. He's out in this wilderness area for a long time. He's waiting. Doesn't know what for. And so we pick up the story a little later on. He's taking the sheep that, and stock that are not his, as an important part of the story, as his father-in-law's possessions. He leads them across the wilderness to Mount Sinai. So he's taking, let me just say, he's taking sheep through the wilderness to Mount Sinai where he meets God. He's having a practice run because he's going to be going back that way in quite a few years' time with a whole bunch of sheep called people across the same desert to the same mountain to have another encounter with God. So the story is loaded with imagery and repeated themes. The other thing that's going on in the story, and we pick it up in chapter 3 of Exodus, is God makes these really very uncomfortable statements. I have heard the prayers of my people, and I'm concerned that they're suffering. I know the stress they are under. They're, being, uh, they're basically slaves. And in this part of the story, you go, so what are you going to do about it, God? And from the point of view of the person who's the slave, not the person writing the story and not us knowing the end, these slaves are slaves, brutally treated. What are you going to do about it, God? And from the perspective of the people in Egypt, not Moses, it would appear God's just listening to their prayers. Oh, God, you're so good listening to our prayers. And nothing's happening. No change, no miracle, no breakthrough. How patient are you? Because what's not easy to see, without digging into if you ask me, is that the whole time God is preparing, making plans, putting together an incredibly miraculous supernatural plan of deliverance for these people that's not going to happen at the snap of a finger. It's not a microwave moment. It's a slow cooker. It's a piece of pork in the, well, actually a bad choice of words for Jews. It's a piece of beef <laughs> in, in a slow cooker. Uh, for all, yeah, okay, you get my drift. So even though God has a plan, 
it nearly will always involve waiting and the challenges that could cause you or me to give up. And so we pick up the story today. We're starting in chapter 5 through 12. This is an interesting, lengthy discourse about Moses after his encounter with God being told to go and present yourself to the Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. So Moses goes, uh, Bidi, you sure you've got the right guy? I can't speak. So God gets a bit cranky with him and sends him with his older brother, Aaron, who's going to be his spokesperson. And so we pick it up in chapter 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. At this point in time, he's only talking about having a holiday. He's talking about having a little wander out into the desert just to worship, but God's got a plan way beyond that. The Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let the people go. Because they said, Well, the God of the Hebrews is met with us. It's kind of like, Why would you bother saying that to the Pharaoh when he's just said, I don't know the Lord? It's like, Anyway, they persevered. Let us take a three day journey, blah, blah, blah. They go on through that. Um, Pharaoh's not impressed. Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labour? Get back to your work, exclamation mark. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. So that very same day, Pharaoh gave the order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks. Wow. So things just got tough. Say tougher. I've been praying. I'm asking God for a breakthrough. I'm getting bigger bills than I was a week ago. I've got bigger arguments happening. I'm getting nastier phone calls and emails than I've ever seen in my whole life. I'm just going, God, help me. I'm feeling the pressure here. What's going on in my life? And it would appear in this story, and my experience of my life is, oftentimes when I've prayed about something, either there's a couple of things go on. Either nothing seems to change. Or things go from bad to worse, and sometimes you get a breakthrough. It's like, and my overview of that is they're all in different parts of a different timeline as to when they, when they work out. So have you ever felt like the more you pray, the harder life gets? I've got good news for you. It's true. It sometimes does. I've got better news for you. That hard time is part of the process of you getting your breakthrough. It's not there to make life more miserable, full stop. It's there that an increasingly difficult season in life will come to an end and God will deliver you and God will put you in a new place. It's part of the process. We live in a really uh, complicated world where there's a lot of impetus within the structures we live in in our society to make everything equal. Equality is the big deal. Everyone's got to be equal, equal opportunity, equal this, equal that. We've got all sorts of political forces working behind the scenes to try and equal things up. The only problem is that the world is not equal. You notice that every star is a different size. Every mountain's a different height. Every valley's a different depth. Every wave in the ocean, from the large one to the little one to a little ripple on the lake, is still a wave. Every one of them is important to God. If I remember at school in running races, I was actually pretty good at running when I was six. I'm not so good at running now. Kind of. 
rather ride a bike because it's not quite so stressful on the bones, but anyway, I used to run fast. I reckon I would have won a few ribbons come first. But God bless the parents that are waiting on the sidelines for their child who they know is going to come last. Because with God, it's not whether you win or lose, or whether you're smart or dumb, or whether you're rich or poor, or whether you're male or female, or whether you're this, that or the other. What matters to God is you. The equality of the equation is his love for you, his love for me. The inequality of the situation, it seems to me, is something that we could spend our entire life trying to mitigate, change, muck around with. And there's things that are inequalities that must be addressed. I'm not just saying we just ignore people in extreme poverty or disadvantage, whatever that might be. Don't hear me say that at all, please. But what I'm saying is, as a, at a philosophical level at the very least, we can obsess about that and miss the point that within the variations of who we are, there is a constant and his name is God. God loves you. You don't have to be equally endowed with intelligence, finances, opportunities, whatever. When you start living a comparative life, you're heading down a road, heading down a road of misery. Head down the road of a life, I know what I stand, God loves me. Warts and all. Anyone say amen to that? So the pathway to the future may have more challenges than we can imagine. Unreasonable bosses, politicians, leaders, personal difficulties, stress, harshly treated, people we thought we were going to make us better actually making us worse. You just could go on. It's like, really? Well, I want to tell you something good. In amongst that really obscene context of slave driving in Egypt, God was at work. So when you feel like he's given up on you, when you feel like your prayers aren't being answered, you feel like everybody's against me, you know, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I think we'll go and eat worms, the old ditty we used to say. Well, I used to anyway. It's like, um, no, 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 God, God's got his eye on you. God looks at you and smiles. That's my Abigail. She's a legend. She's a champion. She might be having the worst day ever in her life. And God's smiling at her. It'd be a whole lot better to start wondering, rather than, is God ticked off with me? My God's smiling at me. He's for me. He's working on a plan. It might not appear to me that anything's going on at the moment, but I'm going to be patient and wait. I'm going to wait for my breakthrough. Um, so anyway, Moses then turns to the people and tells them and the leaders of the Israelites are a little bit miffed. They're saying, mate, until you turned up, at least we were living relatively, we're getting fed, we had a roof over our head. The slave drivers are dogs, but they're, let's just say they're reasonably reasonable. Since you've turned up, they've turned into these hideous fiends that are making our life a total misery. And so they turn on Moses and Aaron and say, it's all your fault. That's a little bit rough. So in verse 22 of chapter 5, it says, Moses returned to the Lord. And it's easy in the context of the fact he's come from the, from the outback out of the Arabian Peninsula across into Egypt. It's very easy to kind of maybe read he's physically gone somewhere. But the commentary that I found with this particular verse was it's really a statement about he actually prayed. He turned to God in prayer and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? 
Ever felt like you were going to help somebody and they turned around and threw it in your face and accused you of actually not being there to help but you were there to actually screw them over? It's like, that's a bad day in the office. Just, I went in innocently trying to help and that's how Moses got treated with Aaron. So my second point this morning is this, under pressure. When we're under pressure, we need to learn to go to God. It's the smartest thing we can do. Just pray about it. Talk to God about it first. Nothing wrong with going to speak to a friend, a pastor, somebody, a leader, connect group leader, somebody you trust who's a Christ follower and saying, look, a few things going on at the moment. And my first question to someone who came and shared with me a deep-seated concern about their life is, have you prayed about this? And sometimes the answer to that question is, um, no. I say, well, let's start there. That's a good starting point. Not a second or third point, first point. Have you prayed? Um, that doesn't mean anything's going to appear to have changed, by the way. But praying opens up that channel of God knows you're interested in knowing what he's up to. Okay. Um, so down in chapter 7, pick up the story. Moses and Aaron um, did just what the Lord commanded. Listen to this. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to the Pharaoh. Yeah. So, Les, don't you be thinking you're finished yet. Hear what I'm saying? Keep speaking up, man. Just get him started. Any young person here is kind of pondering whether they've got enough wisdom for the next chapter of life? Speak to Les. He'll give you a little bit of wisdom, a little clip under the ear, a little bit of help to think about what matters, right, Les? Totally. So over the next six chapters then, so we're talking about chapters like 7 through um, 12, etc. We find Moses and Aaron encountering what we would probably refer to today as a fairly unstable and unreliable ruler in the Pharaoh who made their lives and the lives of the Israelites tough going. That's not bad at the age of 80, get into his face. and When you think about the backstory, like, the fact that Moses was born into, adopted into a royal family, so to speak, is part of the mechanism of the pre-planning. So Moses in the, in the uh, basket in the Nile, picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter, brought up in that context, miraculously opened the door for him to have an audience with the Pharaoh. Like, what's a guy, how's he going to get into that? Those things are all part and parcel that's, that's woven into the fabric of the narrative. I don't know about you, but I look back and go, 10 plagues, what the heck? Why not just one? Why not just zap Pharaoh with a bottle of lightning and take him out on the first hit? Boom, this is God. It doesn't do that. Do you, ever, do you think about that when you read the Bible? Like, God, what's the, what's the deal with the flies and the gnats and the blood and the frogs and snakes and holy moly? But I want to say this to you. This is what I got from that. You and I can be like the children of Israel as an individual and God is going to do what he can without forcing your hand in other words you get um, against your will change the situation God's going to work behind the scenes to try and put freedom in front of you say freedom, freedom. say it with attitude freedom 
I mean true freedom, a true sense of, of worth, a true sense of purpose, a true sense of identity. That's freedom. And he wants to put that in front of every person who will listen. And in this story, it takes 10 episodes of weird stuff going on for them to actually be set free. And what's really fascinating about them is the sequence of events in these 10 issues. The first few episodes are encounters with magicians who can replicate the miracle, the supernatural wonders. It's amazing that it's the first thing that topples. They give up after a few episodes. They can't actually replicate the next thing that God shows Aaron and Moses to do. The number one stronghold in any person's life that's heading towards Jesus that needs to be conquered are the spiritual powers of darkness. The witchcraft, the magicianship in this story, strongholds. Now, we might want to, in 21st century, put a little bit less emphasis on the, um, let's just say the spiritual side of that. I'm not saying it's not there because we're spiritual people. But let's just say you and I can have embedded psychological. We've got an embedded view of everything. You are brought up to believe all sorts of stuff by parents, by school teachers, by colleagues, by friends, by people who might have done the wrong or right thing by you. You and I have got embedded beliefs. And this is what is attended to first. So God wants your attention when a bloke like me, if it's me or a a member of our church that's on that pulpit squad is preaching, male or female, has got nothing to do with it. They're a messenger from God. God's first port of call is to put in front of you the possibility that what you believe is false. Or at least incomplete. Or at least maybe a little bit flawed. And so he's patiently wanting you to consider options. That's the first lot. The next lot of miracles, signs, involve... The crowd kind of being silenced. You've got unhelpful friends. You've got some people that you value who actually do not poke you towards God. They poke you towards other things. We're waiting for the opposing voices to shut up. That's what God's patiently waiting for. Tune out the background noise of opposition And wonder, is it possible that God loves me? Is it possible that Jesus' blood can cleanse me from my sin? Is it possible that I can be born again? I've got to stop letting people who say, no, that's a load of crap, Pastor Bruce, pardon the language. It's a load of rubbish. I've got people that, oh man, they get all hoity-toity about it. I've got to let God in his patience keep walking with me through those moments. And then finally, the biggest hurdle of all, Pharaoh. If I ask you this question, what's the most objectionable stronghold of thinking you've got today? As opposed to what God wants for you in your life. What's the loudest, clangingest, most cunning, most powerful belief you might be sitting on or in this morning? that's actually still got you trapped, still got you 
um, refrain from entering into God's promises for your life. What is that? I want to say to you, this story in these first few chapters of Exodus, amongst other things about the story being a fabulous story in and of itself, is the fact that it alludes to a whole bunch of things about how God paves the way for freedom for every person who believes. Moses and Aaron are the messengers. Oftentimes, you're the messenger in 2023. You're the messenger for a friend. You're the person who can encourage them. You're the person who maybe have to have 10 different conversations. You ever had a conversation with a friend that you think is kind of, kind of half interested in what you believe about God and you have a conversation and think, well, I hope that went pretty well. When they come back next time, they've got more questions than they had last time. It's like, so, and don't get all caught up in the number 10. It might be a thousand conversations. But my point is that God's patiently waiting for the penny to drop and waiting for that number one objection. You'll have one. If you're not a Christ follower, you'll have, an, you'll have a, a primary objection to the reality of God that is represented in this story by Pharaoh. And God deals with Pharaoh. He kills his firstborn son. And every other firstborn in, his, in Egypt, apart from the Israelites, who are saved by, and the imagery of the blood on the doors and the, the Passover lamb, that's where all that stuff comes from. Your objection does not have children. It's got no, in other words, it's saying it's, it's got no future. Your future is a dead end. I mean, the objection, sorry, <laughs> that was a faux pas. Your future, is, your future is a dead end if you let the objection run the rule, rule the roost. It was all in there somewhere, it just came out wrong. Come on, give me a break. That's good. That's online too, isn't it? Yeah? That's YouTube. Pastor in C3 says your future's a dead end. It's like, oh boy. Okay. All right, you got me. I didn't hear that just as well. Whatever it was, don't say it again. So my final point here is this. Is it possible this morning, as a way of dealing with that objection, to looking at God through the lens of him being for me and not against me? Part of our objection could include things that, you know, God's not happy with me, even if God's real. Life. I don't know what your objection is, but I want to say to you, it's time for it to fall. Why don't we stand about feet? I love the fact that we could flip over into the book of Romans chapter 8, where we read these words, what then shall we say in response to all these things? Great question to ask at the end of a sermon. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Pharaoh's objection to God cost him his future in a generational sense. Yours and my future is in the hands of God. 
And he's wanting you and me to seek him and to hear his voice, to be assured that he has got a plan and a purpose for your life and for mine. Love this in verse 33 of Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's every one of us in this room. God's chosen us. Not because we're special, but because in this respect, this is the ultimate example of of equality. God's love for every human being is unshakably presented to every person equally. That doesn't mean equitably, by the way. An equal amount of love for you might mean a whole lot more love because you're a lot more broken than the person next to you. So we're not talking about the equity of the love. We're talking about the equal outcome of the love. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Your mess is no match for his grace, no matter how big or small it is. So I can encourage you over these next few weeks to wait on him. Don't give up if things appear to be going too slow for you. If you've whinged in the last little while about things taking too long, might be a moment to repent this morning in this next couple of minutes. Say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've complained. I've misunderstood your purpose in my waiting. Or I've abandoned the possibility you're even in it. Forgive me, Lord. Just close your eyes where you're standing, if you haven't already. Heavenly Father, we just stand in your presence, mindful that you are a God who delivers us from evil. Lord, I pray today that somebody listening to this message, whether it's here in this auditorium now or online, literally at the moment or down the track in the next few weeks, that their Pharaoh would capitulate and say, go and worship your God. And we'd seize the moment to say yes to you. If you've never considered some of this battle stuff that's going on behind the scenes in your life through this sort of lens, maybe something I've said today has helped you to think, why not? Why not step out of that place of being blocked, being inhibited? Why not consider the possibility of a whole new way of thinking and believing? I'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray a prayer together with you. Essentially, that acknowledges that moment in time where you go, I believe that Jesus is God's Son. Help me, Lord, to stop believing what I've previously believed is truth, which isn't. Put my anchor into you and head into a brand new day for the rest of my days. If you're prepared to pray a prayer that's expressing that sort of sentiment, I'd love you to slip your hand up and say, that's me, I've never prayed a prayer like that.
I can pray a prayer like that. That's going to help me to step into the future that God has for me. So Holy Spirit, come. Wash over every life. Lord, I pray that you would comfort those who are mourning today. Maybe they're waiting for a brighter day and wondering whether it'll ever come. And I pray, Lord, that maybe for them, the Pharaoh's just a dark cloud hanging over their life that literally needs to blow away. Pray, Lord, for those that are anxious this morning, anxious about the future, maybe anxious about the financial stress that many a person finds themselves in at the moment, the uncertainty of what that looks like. Pray for people that are homeless or about to be because they can't afford to stay where they are or even get a place to call home. As much as it's up to us, Lord, as we come across people in our paths that are experiencing those sort of difficulties in life, I pray that your spirit would just motivate us and equip us and empower us to go the distance with people. So help us, Lord, to be your hands and feet at a whole new level in our community in this coming weeks, months and years. Bless and guide us as we live our lives together be with the people who are getting up at the crack of dawn on Tuesday, Lord, to remember those that paid what is the ultimate price from the perspective of a society and a country. Be with those families, Lord, who consider the loss of loved ones in every theatre of life, whether it's at war or in other circumstances. And so, Lord, we just lift these concerns and these things up to you as we head out into the week. That is called living. And so we want to live by the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just remain standing and we'll sing this last song together.